Well, this morning I want to uh, read once again Matthew 24, uh, verses 15 through 28. And hopefully we will develop some context for the, this message itself. We gave previous context to this last week from the book of Daniel. Um, and so I want to build upon that in looking at this, this text. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This morning we want to put this passage into its near future context. It's important for us to see that to understand the basis of what the Lord Jesus is preaching here. It's one of the reasons I had Scott read Luke 21. That is a companion passage. And yet in that companion message, there's a little more detail or a little different detail in Luke than there is in Matthew. But both are right there together. And Mark is in agreement with both of those as well in Mark chapter 13. The message here is something of very near future importance. We established how it was in a far future context from the time of Daniel. And if you want to think about that, uh, you, you can think about it as you go back and you look at the prophecy of Daniel, which we did last week. So it puts us into a context to understand this passage in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Number one this morning, the desolation was revealed through Daniel. The desolation was revealed through Daniel. Now, we reviewed that last week. I'm not going to review all of that because that's why I preached last week. And Lord gave me the opportunity to do that. If you were unable to hear that, I would encourage you to go back and listen because it gives uh, Old Testament context to what I will say today. But we have to recognize what the Lord Jesus is doing here. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. 
And I'm now not only reaffirming it in one sense, I am giving it in the context of my better ministry as I am the Messiah. Jesus is saying, here's what was being spoken of. Furthermore, Luke records it this way in verse 22 of Luke 21. Because these days, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Daniel was giving something that was far future for him. 580 years or so. Far future for him. As we said last week, he could not even have understood the Roman Empire. He didn't even have the the, the idea of that. But putting it in the context of the visions of the four kingdoms that he did have, he did understand Babylon, but he didn't understand Rome. So the context of the abomination of desolation, which Daniel prophesied, the Lord Jesus is now saying, that which was far future to Daniel, I'm going to put it in its near future context so you disciples will understand it. But before we even get to that far future context, we must remember there is a fulfillment of prophecy that's being reissued here. Think about it this way for a moment. The Lord Jesus is reissuing this prophecy, reaffirming it, and he's building upon it and telling us this is what it says, and yet he's doing that in the context of the prophecy being fulfilled over time. The Lord Jesus is now preaching on this after there had been 400 years of silence where there had been no prophet. No new prophet had come. No revelation of the Lord had been given to the people. Nothing had been said until the time of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came, he spoke of the Messiah and he ushered in the way of the Lord. And then upon John the Baptist prophesying, we're recognizing that it wasn't too long after John's birth, the Lord Jesus himself was born. It was not too long after John began to preach that the Lord Jesus, his ministry was confirmed because he was recognized as the one who was sent from the Father. It was during this time that the Lord Jesus began to perform many signs and he preached the gospel of his death and burial and resurrection. And after he performed these signs and he preached the gospel, we now come to a time where the Messiah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming. Now this is important. What you will see in these passages is predominantly, and I would say well over 90%, is about the actual destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now when I start that way, there there are some guests with us today, and you've not been here, and I don't want you to be uh, upset or bothered. I want you to recognize that there are good men who disagree on some of these things. But I hope in this case for us to be able to realize that there has to be a very serious near future context, not just because I think it is, but because I think the text shows it. My goal last week was to show that there was prophecy that had given us this, and now is to show that the Lord Jesus is building upon that prophecy and the message itself reveals the near future sense of what Jesus was revealing in this very prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. 
But we will see as we move along that verses 29 to 31 begin to introduce to us something very far future, which is the second coming of Christ. When we get into the latter part of this message, we begin to deal with the second coming of Christ in Matthew 25, verses 40 uh, or, or 31 to the end. But before we ever talk about his second coming, we have to realize there was a setup for all of that. And it's something very near future, and it's the warnings that the Lord Jesus gives here. It brings us to number two. Firstly, we said the desolation was revealed through Daniel. Number two, the desolation was revealed regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. The desolation was revealed regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. This brings us to a place to ask a question. How do we know this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? How is it that we could surmise that or think of it in that context? Now, there are some who want to take passages like this and others and put almost all, if not most, of the emphasis on something far future. And I think that would be inappropriate because of the nature of the message that Jesus gives here and the text itself. Firstly, recognize the pronoun you in the message. I spoke briefly about this, but I want to remind you of it once again. Recognize the pronoun you in the message. Matthew uses the pronoun you and your. Verse 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation. He's speaking this to those disciples at the time. You see it. You he goes on down later in verse 20, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Your. When you listen to Scott read in Luke verses 20 to the end of that section, and we're going to go through that in another point in just a moment, so I'll bring your attention to it. But the same pronoun is used there, you and your. When you use that kind of a pronoun, it's very difficult for us to always put that in something far future. Matter of fact, we don't do that in modern English language very often. We don't all of a sudden take a personal pronoun pointed at you and take that and put that in some sense as though that's somebody that's thousands of years removed or thousands of years in the future. The Lord Jesus is preaching a message. He's this is the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's sitting right around there on the edge of it, uh, on the side of it, somewhere right around there. And he's speaking to the disciples. He's right there to them, looking at them, saying, but when you see it, I think to put all of the emphasis or even most of the emphasis onto something far future would be very difficult because we would seldom do that in our common understanding. It's more understandable for us to look at this and say, the Lord Jesus is saying something to them. That's not saying that there won't be some emphasis to believers in the far future, and I think we'll get there if, if you stay with me through the whole discourse. But I think we have to see the immediate sense of what the Lord Jesus is saying. You, your. Number two, not only do we recognize the pronoun you in the message, but we recognize the geography in the message. We recognize the geography. 
Matthew points to the region of Judea, which includes Jerusalem. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, verse 16, then those who are in Judea must flee. Those who are in Judea must flee. Now, to his listeners, that was a very specific region. That is the region of uh, predominantly the people of Israel, and that region includes the city of Jerusalem. Right then and there, their ears would have perked up because the Lord Jesus had a very confined ministry for the most part, and it was primarily to the Jews themselves, and he had been a prophet to the Jews themselves primarily in his personal ministry. And now he's speaking to these disciples who are following them, and he says, when you see this desolation, those who are in Judea must flee. Now I think Luke here gives us even more context to the idea of this geography, if you want to turn to Luke 21. If you turn over to Luke chapter 21, verse 20, when I read some of this in Luke, you need to note those personal pronouns that are there as well. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20. Luke says, now remember, Luke is, uh, look at me just a second, I want, I want you to remember the context, okay, before we dive into this. Remember what Luke is saying. He's already told them there's going to be some dire situations. You're going to see some, uh, some cataclysmic things happen in the world around you, nations and kingdoms at war. There's going to be uh, natural disasters and things of that nature. And there's multiple historians that give us some account that those things were happening uh, in the time after the death of Christ and his ascension, that that was going on in and around uh, the, the area of Judea. But not only that, he says, during this time, you're the ones that are going to be persecuted, and some of you are going to be put to death. So there's this period after the death and resurrection of Christ and his ascension that he's already warning them, these things are going to happen to you. You're going to be brought before kings and, and, and major figures. Well, do we not see that in the book of Acts? Is, is that not what happens in the book of Acts? The Lord Jesus ascends. They begin to preach. When they begin to preach, what happens? The religious leaders surround. They don't like it. They're called before them. They begin to be persecuted. Stephen is murdered. I mean, just think of how all of that unfolds. And as they move forward, we're seeing those things happen in the book of Acts. That which Jesus says will happen actually happen. Once again, it just shows you we can trust everything that the, that the Scripture teaches us and prophesies to us. When it comes to this section of Luke, he then turns for a moment and he turns to this idea of the desolation and he says, but when you see Jerusalem, now this is the geography, you, personal pronoun, see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Who is the her? It's the city. Matthew gives us this broad understanding of what's going to happen in the whole of Judea. 
one historian, uh, Josephus, notes that the armies began to move, and they didn't just move on Jerusalem. There were actually battles that happened in the northern part of Judea. Another Roman historian notes that these battles took place because there had already been uh, Jews who had gone to war against the Romans in the northern regions of Judea. And the reason that Vespasian was there and his son Titus eventually came in was to put down these uprisings in the northern part of Judea. And so once Vespasian was called back to Rome to become emperor and he left his son Titus right there, what Titus began to do was to begin to take down these uh, Jewish strongholds in the northern part of Judea. So before they ever reached Jerusalem, in the northern part of Judea, the Roman Empire is coming against the Jews. It's why in one place you have the region of Judea and in another place, you have the specific context of the city of Jerusalem. It's amazing how God gives specific context to this and gives the widest and the best view for us to see what is happening. While the Roman Empire marched through the northern parts of Judea, over a period of a year and a half as they marched southward, then they begin to surround the city of Jerusalem. And they take it and destroy it in A.D. 70. The Lord Jesus is speaking here and he says very plainly, when you... Now, some of the disciples had already been killed by that time because you remember the earlier part of the prophecy in Luke is that some of you are going to be put to death. And that happened. Before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., some of the disciples had already been put to death. But there were some of those disciples and the followers of those disciples who had been there with them, they saw that destruction. And the Lord Jesus said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, In verse 21, he says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Judea. Here Luke gives us both the wider context of Judea or the wider geography of Judea and the more specific geography of Jerusalem. Those who are in Judea, when you start witnessing this conflict coming, and it would have been very noticeable to the Jews of that day with the Roman armies when they were marching southward into the northern part of Judea. It would have been pretty noticeable. When the Roman armies did anything, it became pretty noticeable. There's a, for some of you that are interested in this, there's a about an hour or so long documentary that you can watch. Uh, someone's put together on YouTube. It's kind of an animated context of how the wars took place and the different battles that happened over a period of time and you can kind of see it it just helps with the geography of your mind to kind of see what's happening but when you read the historians on it it becomes very gruesome to recognize how awful this destruction was and that the Lord Jesus had prophesied it some 25 years or so earlier See, the Lord Jesus was not afraid to deal with the specifics because he gave the actual geography in and of itself, Judea and Jerusalem. 
in Luke's context, it's not only that the city will be surrounded, but in verse 24 it says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. See, there's a very specific geographical context given here. Now, in my understanding of the doctrine of the end times, there have been some in the past that, not in this church, but other places that would say, well, you don't believe in the literal reading of Scripture because you symbolize too many things. But what about my brother who tries to tell me when I see the word Jerusalem right here in the Olivet Discourse that the word Jerusalem and Jerusalem being trampled underfoot, that that's talking about some nation 3,000 years in the future? How, how is that not being symbolic? There's many, many historical pastors and theologians that held and many today that hold the view that I hold that Jesus in this passage is giving them a direct understanding of something near future he said Judea he said Jerusalem so why should I not take him at his word he said Jerusalem's going to be trampled right and in fact in history we know now that did happen the Roman Empire absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and brought Judea under its complete rule and reign. Now, as we unfold some of this, we'll see the reasons why he did it, I think. Because there's real good reasons why that needed to happen. But to my friends and brothers in Christ who would say to me, well, when you read Revelation, Brandon, you're a little too symbolic in your understanding of revelation you don't take it literally but my friends and my brothers and sisters when they go to the Olivet Discourse and they try to tell me that Jerusalem is something 2,000 years or 3,000 years in the future is that not doing the same thing it goes back to what we talked about last week a very important point we always interpret scripture according to its meaning in its proper genre and context. If you ask me, in the reading of the flood of Genesis, did a flood actually happen, I will say to you, yes. That was a real, actual flood. God flooded the whole of the earth. Why? Because Genesis is a historical book that tells me history. In the Olivet Discourse, as well in the book of Revelation, and especially in the Olivet Discourse, there is a mixture of what is prophetic for what is near future and prophetic for what is far future. What is far future is not given as much detail. I want to read it in its proper genre and context. I want to understand that in this genre, there is apocalyptic literature. Jesus speaking of future things. And you have to recognize to the disciples, this was future. They couldn't fathom in their minds in the minute, in that moment, that Jerusalem could even be destroyed. How do we know that? Turn back to Matthew 24. 
How do I know they couldn't understand it? It goes back to when we started this. Verse 24, chapter 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, he had just given a hard teaching about Jerusalem. And even in verse 37 of chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left desolate to you. And then Jesus comes down here, and the disciples say, Wait a second, do you not see? Verse, 20, uh, verse 2 of chapter 24, do you not see all these things? Do you not see? The disciples are going, Look, Jesus, there's all that. Look at the temple. Look at these big stones. um, if you read a little bit about the building of the temple walls and the stone walls around Jerusalem, the thickness of some of these walls is absolutely amazing. We don't build really anything that quite that thick anymore. Now, we have reasons that we don't do that. Uh, You know, we, we have steel rebar and all kind of things and different things that we have now. But they had a fortified city. The thickness of these stones is like, five, six feet thick. In some places, they're like 10, 12 feet thick. You're looking at a stone building that is just massive, and it has thick walls to it, and the disciples are going, don't you see this? Look at this building. It's beautiful, and it is strong. And the Lord says, you know what? Not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. I don't think the Lord Jesus was speaking of something far future when he said that. He was speaking of something near future. Something 25 or so years in the future to them that they couldn't quite understand. Something 30 years in the future to them they couldn't quite understand. He's looking at things that are going to happen in the context of their lives and saying to them, I'm telling you right now, you watch. And he goes on in the message, and Luke records it this way, that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. And that's exactly what they did. The Romans just completely destroyed most of the walls around the city. The temple walls were destroyed. The temple was caught on fire, which is kind of hard to do. I think the Lord Jesus is speaking very plainly to them about something that's near future. It's prophecy because it hadn't happened yet. And they can't fathom it or imagine it, right? They're going, what? You're going to tear the temple down and raise it up in three days. That sounded strange when you said that to the Pharisees. And now you're telling us that this place is going to be left desolate? Wait, wait, have you not seen the temple building? Look at how beautiful it is after Herod rebuilt it and gave it an addition and a nice face wash. It's beautiful. And it's huge and massive. He says, well, it's going to be destroyed. I think we have to take this in its proper context. For them, it was prophecy. They could not see it or understand it. 
but it was near future prophecy, and it came true. Now, that really ought to make us happy. If you're a believer here today, and you've heard what I've said so far, you ought to be happy that the prophecy was fulfilled. Because what does that say to you? The Lord Jesus spoke prophecy. It was true prophecy. It was fulfilled, and it happened exactly like he said it would. So once again, I find one more place on my list I can trust the word of the Lord. Let me just add that to the number of places if I've got a list that I can trust the word of the Lord. Now, the list is already pretty long, right? But I'm just adding it in there. Well, not only do I think the geography indicates the destruction of Jerusalem, but recognize the time frame indicated in the message, recognize the time frame. Now, this goes along with those personal pronouns as well. Matthew indicates several places in the message of this time frame. He says, when you see the desolation or the abomination of desolation, he says, when you see it, then those in Judea are to flee. Now, this is giving us a time frame. When you see it, those who are in, in Judea at the time that you will see it, they are to flee. He says, when you see it, in verse 21, he says, for then there will be a great tribulation. Then. Then is giving us the context of time frame. What's the great tribulation? It's the destruction of Jerusalem because the Jew can't fathom it. The Jew cannot fathom that fortified city completely being trampled. And that's the way Luke says it, right? He records Jesus' words and says, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. Trampled underfoot. The tribulation was speaking right then and there to the Jew at the time. Everything about the Jewish life was wrapped up in the idea of Zion, the city of Zion, of David, which is Jerusalem. The temple was built there. It had been there for literal century upon century. It had been rebuilt after Babylon had destroyed it. Remember Daniel? We preached through Daniel some months ago. Y'all were very gracious. It took me a while to get through it, and you were kind. I appreciate that. We went through the book of Daniel, and we saw it. The temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is led into captivity. The dispersion was great. And then there's this promise that you're going to get it back. And it happens in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They get it back, and they rebuild it over a period of time. And then God has told them it's going to be destroyed again. And when is it going to be destroyed again? Upon this prophecy. And that's what happened in 70 AD. The Jewish mind had been wrapped up in the city of Jerusalem. And now, with the better ministry of Christ, he's saying, there's no need for the temple. I am the high priest. I am the sacrificial lamb. So he prophesies to them the great tribulation will be something will happen that you can't even imagine. 
the whole of the city of Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Not only does Matthew give the indication of this time frame, but Luke does the same. Well, this leads us to a second question. thinking that this prophecy is near future to the disciples and it's a devastating prophecy that they can't even really fathom. It would be like me saying to you that the whole of the city of Atlanta is going to be absolutely flattened. I mean, not a building left. If I said to you today, the whole of Atlanta will be flattened and not a building left and it's going to happen in the future... Could you really fathom that? Could, could, you, could you wrap your brain around that? It was hard enough for us to wrap our brain around two towers being taken down by Islamic terrorists. I mean, we were watching it on TV, right? The smoke rising from the buildings, and we watched the buildings collapse, and what was going on in our mind? That can't be happening. It happened, didn't it? It was real, wasn't it? It's not a figment of my imagination, right? But I'm going to go further than that, and I'll tell you that the whole city of New York will be flattened. What would you... What? This is the kind of cataclysmic thing the Lord Jesus is telling these disciples. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, when you see it, then recognize that her desolation is near, is what he says. The time frame is near future. Not far, far, far future, but near future. But it leads to this other question. What hope is provided amidst the darkness of this prophecy? It's a dark prophecy. And you and I, we're reading it as history past and looking at it and going, if you go and take some time to read about the destruction of Jerusalem and everything that happened to the Jewish people and what took place, the war is absolutely awful. I'm talking nursing babies, infants, are murdered and trampled by the Roman Empire. I mean, the graphic detail of some information you can gather is just horrific. This is a dark prophecy. What hope is provided? Well, number one, under this question, God decreed and controls the place of the desolation. We've already built the case that it's a specific place We've recognized that, but that ought to be some comfort that God can prophesy and he can purpose the desolation in a specific place. He controls it. He's sovereign over it. And we know it's decreed because it was decreed and given to Daniel in prophecy in chapter 9 and chapter 11 of Daniel, and Gabriel gave it to him. It was decreed long before time began. Not only does he control the place of the desolation, but number two, God decreed and controls the time frame of the desolation. 
about that for a minute. There's not one war, not one atrocity, not one terrible thing that ever happens on this sinful earth that God himself is not in sovereign control over it. And he has a purpose for everything in it. Now, would you rather you and I be in control of that? Now, I can be honest with y'all. I don't want to be in control of it. There's various reasons why. And I can also tell you, you don't want me in control of it. Because I'm going to work it out for my purposes and for my good. You know, I know a lot of y'all for a long number of years, and I really love y'all. But I'm going to do some stuff for me. See, that's, that's how we think. And I'm not just, I'm not holy, I'm not right, I'm not good in and of myself. But God is. I'd rather him be in control of all of those difficulties. And right here, Jesus is saying, this is under God's control. The time of this desolation, the place of it, and even the effects of it. Look at verse 22. Matthew chapter 24 Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short. That's an interesting way to phrase that from the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Unless those days had been cut short. You notice that? That's perfect past tense ongoing. Unless those days had been cut short. Well, when was it that they were determined to be cut short? Had been. He's speaking of eternity past. Speaking of eternity past, he says, unless those days had been cut short from eternity past, before time began, no life would have been saved. First of all, we need to know that God does this for the sake of his people's physical lives. I want you to think about something here. There's a great mercy to God's elect in this that the elect are preserved by God's limiting of the desolation. All those who were to die in the desolation, not one of them, were to die who would be those that God would save. Those that did die in salvation, it was already predetermined that they would. God has a purpose in all of this. Even those who are not saved yet, they are being preserved for a future time where they will be saved. Now that's hard to talk about because you're looking at a man talking about that. And I don't want you to view me while you're talking about or thinking about this great sovereignty of God to preserve his people. I want you to think about who God is, good and right and just and holy. That he would have a people for himself that even in a great desolation like that, he will not lose one. Wasn't that Jesus' words? My sheep know my voice. When they hear me call, they come. I will not lose one of them, he says. And now Jesus is proclaiming, I'm not going to lose one of them even in the midst of a great desolation where the whole of the city of Jerusalem and Judea is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. I will not lose one of my people. 
Ooh. That's good stuff. But not only are we speaking of God's people here, but we even speaking of unbelievers are preserved by God's limiting of the desolation. One writer puts it this way. God's people bring a certain mercy to the people around them. While the unrepentant do not share in the ultimate salvation, yet something of good comes to them because of the presence of the elect in their communities. Because God was going to preserve some people who were of his Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, there was also some preserving of other lives. Can you imagine one of the disciples trying to flee the city of Jerusalem, heading to the mountains in and around Judea? And along the way, he begins to grab some other person or say to them, Come with me. Don't go to the city. If you go to the city, it's going to be bad. Don't go. Don't go. This person may not be a believer. And he's taking them with them. What a preservation. What a kindness that God gives even to someone who's unconverted. The unconverted person getting a little bit lengthier time of life in God's sovereignty and providence. The unconverted person being given a longer time of life and one day they may be saved according to God's purpose. Even among the greatest of desolations that the people of Israel could even, they could not even fathom it God is being preserving and kind to his people and even those around them who may be unbelievers. Flee to the mountains. Don't get your cloak. Don't go down and do that. Come, let's go now, 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 now. Think about God's mercy kindness that he's given you another day to breathe do you realize why you're here today God's sovereign kindness to you he gave you this day to breathe and live that one you just took right there God gave it to you Why would we not listen to the truth of his word when he can tell us of a great catastrophe like the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the prophecy was fulfilled exactly like he said when he said he's going to come again one day? Why would we not listen? Why would that be boring? Why would that be of non-interest? Why does the world drive by out there as if nothing is happening in the future that matters but what they're going to do right in the present? That's how awful our sin nature is. It causes us to deny the word of God and to not see it for what it is and to not recognize God's mercy even in the greatest of catastrophes. Even in the darkest of providences, God has a purpose. And he's always doing those things 
for the good of his people who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Will you not pause? Even if you're not sure of some of my thought of the destruction of Jerusalem in these passages, certainly you can see the importance of what God has said. Listen, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Was that not a near future picture to Jerusalem in the day? Because Jerusalem had not wanted to repent, had they? They had still worshipped the idols of the world. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I can build you up as a nation of people and you will disobey me, I can also take you down because I want you to believe in me and not in the other gods of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful that you would give us a time in your word to think through the truth of your word. We glory in you alone, for you alone are sovereign over all things. Space and time was invented by you, made by you, created by you. And you are sovereign over it all. Give us hearts and minds to bow before you as the one true living God. That we would praise you and give you thanks. That in space and time you sent your son to die for sinners. To preach the truth of the kingdom of heaven. Our sins are many. Our self-righteousness is distracting and destroying. Give us hearts and minds to lean fully and wholly upon you and not our own understanding. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.